I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampshades. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal, through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. And um, please keep uh, page 12 in front of you. That last reading uh, from the book of Revelation is going to be a window for us. Uh, today into um, the message of Advent as we begin the season of Advent. Uh, and I want to ask a question to which Advent uh, helps us give an answer. And I take the question uh, from the very beginning of that reading. Take a look at it. Uh, it begins in verse 9. It says this. It says, I, John, that's uh, the Apostle John. This is right at the end of his life. He's probably the last living apostle. Uh, this is maybe around 96 AD, says, I, John, 
your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, stop there. And uh, notice that phrase, the patient endurance. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, how do we develop it? Um, if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, this last book in the Bible, you'll find that the phrase, the word patient endurance uh, shows up a bunch. And it turns out that patient endurance, I don't know whether uh, you ever thought of that as a character trait that was absolutely necessary uh, to your life, but according to the book of Revelation, it is. Uh, it's absolutely essential character quality of someone who's going to follow Jesus. And I want to know, uh, how do we develop it? But let me ask the question uh, in a little different way. Here's, uh, how, here, here it is. How do we persevere as followers of Jesus when we look around and it sort of looks like God is absent? Um, because life is hard sometimes, and, and following Jesus is hard sometimes. And so the question is, how do we not give up? How do we exhibit patient endurance? How do we persevere? How do we not throw in the towel? How is it that we do not give in to fear when we are surrounded by frightful things? And it's not just a question about how do we not give up, but rather patient endurance means not just not giving up. It means pressing in to the unusual beauty that the Lord has called us to. Unusual beauty? It's a weird thing to say. But the Lord calls us as a community, as a church, to demonstrate an unusual kind of beauty. Let me illustrate this. This uh, I'm going to read you uh, something. You may have heard this before. This comes from the letter to Deognetus. Try to pronounce that. Don't try to pronounce that. It's, it's a weird word. Um, but this is a letter uh, to a guy called Deignatus. We don't know who he is. Who, uh, was, this was written just a couple generations after the book of Revelation was written, and it describes uh, the unusual beauty of the Christian community in the Roman Empire. Let me read it to you. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country or language or custom. They live in both Greek cities and barbarian cities. They follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life. And yet at the same time, they demonstrate a remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in, our own, in their own countries, but not only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, but they endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, laws, lives, they transcend the law. They love everyone, and yet by everyone they are persecuted. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, and yet they abound in everything. They are persecuted, and yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. Um, the point is that Christians in the Roman era, they stood out as communities with an unusual kind of beauty. In other words, they reflected uh, the beauty of Jesus Christ. And patient endurance means we're not just going to not give up, but that we're going to press in and exhibit that. And I want to know how we do that. 
And I can imagine somebody saying, well, Jim, why aren't you talking about Advent? To which I respond, I am. Because Advent, not just the season, but the message of Advent is crucial to developing perseverance and patient endurance that leads us to reflect the beauty of Jesus. And that's what I want to unpack as we look at this reading. So come with me now to the reading and go back to the beginning of it. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, when the scene opens up, there's plausible reason to conclude that God is absent. Uh, why do I say that? Well, there's a question that kind of hangs over the book of Revelation and certainly this moment. And it's the question, where is God? Is he gone? Uh, is God absent? Did he leave us? Maybe it's all untrue. Uh, why are those questions hanging over the, the reading? Well, uh, partially because John is the last living apostle and he's in exile. He's exiled in a prison colony on an island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, and that's just, um, that's just the beginning of the problems. Um, because we think that the book of Revelation was probably written during the reign of Domitian, uh, the Emperor Caesar of Rome, probably around uh, the mid-80s-90s. Uh, and Domitian just had a, a crushingly loud voice within the empire, and that voice amplified a crushing view of his own majesty, and his majesty coerced an approach to victory that was just ridiculously, well, it was deadly. What do I mean by that? Well, he, as the emperor, he, he exerted a, a, a crushingly loud voice, which what I mean by that is that he dominated the cultural conversation that shaped the empire. Um, you know that every culture has a cultural conversation that shapes us. Um, uh, for us, if you look at, uh, you know, if you, you look at the way things are marketed to us, if you look at social media, if you look at politics, if you look at consumerism, all of it together uh, pressurizes us in, in different mess with different messages, and those messages inevitably shape the way we think and the way we act and all sorts of things like that, right? I mean, the messages of our culture are, are uh, depicted in marketing. They're uh, reinforced by social media. They're exemplified by politics, and they're incentivized by consumerism, and they inevitably shape us. And at this time, it was Domitian's reign, his loud voice, so to speak, that dominated the cultural conversation. And he used his voice to amplify his own majesty. So uh, at Domitian would allow you to, to worship just about anybody you wanted, so long as you worshipped Domitian as well. Uh, so uh, he required people to call him Lord and God. And periodically, everybody had to go to the local temple, and they had to burn some incense, and they had to declare, Caesar is Lord. This was all to amplify Domitian's majesty. 
And this is where the Christians got into trouble because they refused to do that bit. They were willing to honor Domitian as a political leader, but they were not willing to honor him as Lord because instead of saying Christ, uh, Caesar is Lord, the Christians were committed to the confession that Christ is Lord. And that infuriated Domitian's majesty. And therefore, he exerted, he tried to assert his claim to victory uh, by killing people. And he killed, some, they, some scholars say, somewhere around 40,000 people. And in the midst of this, he and his administration exiled John onto Patmos. And so you can see why it is that perhaps John, but certainly the churches that were in relationship with John had reason to ask, maybe God's absent because it sure seems like we're exiled from anything of value. And we know that they were asking these questions because the Christian communities, the churches that were connected to John, there were seven of them, they started to compromise. Uh, they, they started to give up. They failed in patient endurance. Uh, and we know that because they began to conform to the behavior of the dominant culture around them, which is interesting because it's not that they gave up identifying as Christians. It appears that they were still part of a church community, but nevertheless, many of them, not all, but many of them, while continuing to identify as Christians, began to behave as pagans. Uh, and if you read the next few chapters, what you find out is that they began, some of them were participating in uh, pagan uh, temple worship. They were eating food sacrificed to idols. Others were uh, jettisoning uh, a uniquely Christian approach to sexuality. And others of them were just growing cold in their love for Jesus. They continued to identify as Christians, but they began to live as pagans, which is one of the great temptations. And it's a delight to the devil whenever that happens. But you can see why, can't you? Because it looked, the circumstances looked like God is absent, and it looked like Jesus had lost, and it looked like Domitian had won. And whenever it feels like God is absent, that's when our temptations get really, really loud. And that's why we need Advent. Why does it mean we need Advent? Because Advent is designed to, to dispel the illusion of God's absence. If you look at this reading, John's experience recapitulates, sums up, the message of Advent. This, the message of Advent is kind of uh, bottled up in what John experiences here. And what happens is John hears something, and then he sees something, and then he feels something. He hears the advent of Jesus's voice, and then he sees the advent of Jesus's majesty, and then he feels the advent of Jesus's victory. And that's what the Lord wants all of us to experience this Advent. Let me explain. First, the advent of Jesus' voice. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It means it took place on a Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Now, focus on that voice and in your mind, go back in time. Remember that the Bible is a library of books that were written over the course of more than a thousand years by many, many authors. 
And at several moments throughout that long period of time, there were seasons where it seemed like God was absent. Or another way to put it is there were seasons where God's people were in exile, sometimes literally, politically uh, alienated from their land, but of, at other times, spiritually exiled, alienated from God, or at least it felt that way, and sometimes it was that way. And as you read the story of the Bible, how God responded to this exile or this sense of absence is that God spoke. His voice interrupted the absence and interrupted the exile. God spoke through prophets. And every time God spoke through his prophets, God's voice in many different ways said something like this. Despite appearances, God is not absent. And despite appearances, God is near. And despite all expectations, God is coming. And God is going to arrive. God is going to advent in person and make this broken world right. And actually, several of our readings up until this point in the service have all been that voice from the prophets. And the voice of God is always pointing us away from the present circumstances towards the advent of God in Jesus Christ. And this is crucial because, Emmanuel, what this means is this. If you want to persevere in the Christian life, and if we as a community want to persevere in displaying an unusual kind of beauty that reflects Christ's beauty, then the first key to that is we have to be a people who listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. We have to be a people who listen to Jesus as his voice comes to us through the scriptures. We cannot persevere without the Bible. But then the voice in verse 12 points to the advent of Christ's majesty, just like the prophets always did in the Old Testament. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white, white like wool white like snow you can kind of see that john is struggling to describe the magnitude of this majesty keeps on going he says his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters in the old testament the voice of the prophet said their day is coming when god's going to break in and arrive and in this experience of John, the voice of Jesus turns and displays the majesty of Jesus, and John realizes that the one he's looking at is the one that all the prophets were pointing to. In fact, if you could take all the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming advent of God and squeeze them together and then depict that in art, you would get an image just like what John saw. Let me give you some examples. Look at this is odd, but look at Jesus's feet in verse 15, burnished bronze. Uh, if you were to go back into the Old Testament, into the prophet Daniel, uh, there's a moment when Daniel sees a vision, and in this vision he sees a giant statue, a little bit like the Statue of Liberty. And like our Statue of Liberty stands for America, uh, the statue that 
Daniel saw stood for the Babylonian Empire. And it's a giant statue, like our Statue of Liberty. It's huge, and, it, and to Daniel, it looks like it's a statue that's going to last for forever. Until you look at its feet. Because the feet of the statue in Daniel's vision is made of clay and metal, which is an unstable mixture, and therefore it's clear that this statue, despite all appearances, is soon going to crumble, and it's going to fall with a big crash. And part of the point is that uh, political empires and political power, though it looks powerful in the moment, they never last. They never last for forever, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that Christians can never put our final hope in politics, which is something important for us to remember in this next year. But Jesus's feet is different because Jesus's feet is made of bronze, burnished bronze, which is to say he's not going anywhere. And then look at Jesus's face. Verse 16, his face shines like the sun in all of its brilliance. Once again, this is a reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a blessing. It's actually a blessing we still say here at Emmanuel. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Part of the idea is that all of God's blessing comes from a face-to-face -face encounter with him, to be known by him and to know him face-to-face. -face. That's where all the greatest blessings that last for forever come from that encounter. And yet, the Old Testament also teaches us that none of us can bear looking into the face of God himself. Just like we can't bear looking at the sun, it's just too bright, it's just too brilliant. But now, in this moment, Jesus' face shines, displaying that he is God in person. He is God who has arrived. He is the hope of all the prophets who experienced all the exile past. He is the one who is the opposite of absent. And it's when John looks at his face that John falls down at his feet as though dead. Verse 17, which is a remarkable thing. Why does he fall at his feet as though dead? I mean, John is an apostle. If he knew Jesus when Jesus was ministering here on earth. He knew him better than anyone else. He recognized the voice and he recognized and knew who he was looking at, and yet nevertheless he falls. Why? Why is he afraid? I think he's afraid for a number of reasons. When God advents towards you, and when you come up against Jesus for real, you will inevitably see your sin and how big a deal it is and how holy Jesus is, and that's going to be scary. But on the other hand, when you come up against Jesus for real, and when God advents towards you and into your life, you're going to realize the majesty, his majesty as the creator, and you're going to see that you are made by him, and that means you're small and weak and vulnerable in comparison, and that's going to be scary. But then thirdly, when God advents towards you, and when you come up against Jesus for real, you'll see something that's difficult for humans to describe. The Bible often calls it holiness. 
And the best way I know to describe it is it's like all the beauty of God and all the goodness of God and all the truth of God and all the love of God and all the joy of God and all the purity of God and all of God's hostility against evil, which is an expression of his justice and his righteousness, is all compressed together in infinite intensity. And when you come up against that, you'll realize that its beauty is too sublime to be safe. And so even an apostle falls down as if dead before the majesty of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, Emmanuel, whether or not you've ever been frightened before Jesus. Uh, the, the, there's a hymn, um, you know it, Amazing Grace. Uh, there's a line that sometimes we forget. It goes like this. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Has grace ever taught your heart to fear? Because if I've never been frightened in the presence of Jesus Christ, then it might be a sign that either you're not seeing him as it is, or you're still believing the illusion of God's absence. Advent is frightening. And the reason it is, is because it means that God is coming for us, and that God already has come for us, and that despite appearances, God is closer than our breath. So John experiences the advent of Jesus' voice, the advent of his majesty, but then he experiences the advent of his victory. He could hear the voice, he could see the majesty, but now he has to feel something. He has to feel the victory. Look at verse 17. But Jesus laid his right hand on me. That's what he felt. Saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. See, uh, Domitian uh, grasped for victory by killing his subjects. That was the best he could do. Uh, Jesus achieved victory by dying on behalf of his subjects. And when Jesus died and rose again, what he was doing is he, was, he stole Domitian's final trump card. He, 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 so to speak, robbed evil of evil, evil's final play. And he took the cross and death on the cross, which was an emblem of evil, and Jesus transformed it into an emblem of eternal victory over sin and evil and death forevermore, which means Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. And that explains why it is that John, face to face with God himself in Christ, seeing the majesty of God, that's why he doesn't die. That's why he could look at Jesus' shining face because Jesus had already died the death that John deserved. The sin which John felt in the presence of Jesus's majesty had already be been condemned at the cross of Christ. And that's why now John can stand in the light of Christ's holiness without fear. Jesus's victory his, his death and his resurrection means that John doesn't need to fear anything anymore. He doesn't need to fear his sin because it was condemned at the cross. He doesn't need to fear Domitian 
because Jesus' majesty is far greater than Domitian's. He doesn't need to fear even death because Jesus has made death now a doorway into the kingdom of God and he has transformed it and he holds the keys of death and Hades and so death now must kneel before Jesus Christ. And the point is, it was grace that taught John's heart to fear, but now it's grace that John's fears relieved. And notice again verse 17. John felt the advent of Christ's victory when he felt the right hand of Jesus upon his head. Why Jesus' right hand? Because it's the right hand of blessing. It's the right hand of mercy. It's the right hand of Jesus' favor. It's the right hand of Jesus' presence. John was in exile where it felt like God was absent, but now Jesus' right hand rests upon his head, which means even though John is on an island and on a, in a prison colony in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, nevertheless, he's not really in exile, not at the deeper level, because he has been reconciled into the very presence of God. And the exile underneath all exiles has been canceled by the victory of Jesus Christ, and John feels the right hand of blessing upon his head. And he knows that all will be well if he belongs to Jesus Christ. And all of this means, Emmanuel, that the advent of Christ dispels the illusion of God's absence. And it undercuts all our experience of exile. And the way to persevere as a Christian, and the way to not only patiently endure life, but enter into and live freely exhibiting and reflecting the unusual beauty of Jesus Christ is to internalize the reality of Advent. We've got to internalize that God is not absent, that Jesus Christ has come and that he's here. Verse 20 See verse 20, Jesus holds the stars in his hand and he's amongst the lampposts. Can't go into it, but both of those images teach us that Jesus is near to his churches. He's in the presence of the churches. It means he's standing here now in a remarkable and mysterious way. How do we internalize that message? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that all this happened when John was in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means he was worshiping, it happened to be on a Sunday, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Does that matter for us? It does matter for us because it means that the Holy Spirit advents towards us as well. And the particular gift of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus's presence vivid and compelling to our souls. The Holy Spirit comes first and he makes Jesus's voice captivating to us. We sense and hear the advent of Jesus's voice. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit wants to come and take the Bible's message and make it captivating and compelling to you so that you sense and you know that it is true in all that it says and that it is specifically speaking to you. And as that message dawns upon you, the Holy Spirit is going to use the message of the Bible, the voice of Jesus, to turn and show you, by faith, the majesty of Jesus. And as you look at the majesty of Jesus, it will weigh down upon your soul, and you will see both all that makes him 
worthy of our fear, but you will also see all that makes him wonderfully and beautifully compelling. And the more you look at Jesus by hearing his word in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's how we'll begin to see through the dominant cultural messages that are all around us. We'll be able to see something of their emptiness. We'll be able to see something of the temporary nature of the power that seems so compelling in our world. We can only see that as our eyes are fixed upon the majesty of Jesus Christ. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there because the Holy Spirit keeps going as we listen to the voice of Jesus and see the majesty of Jesus stepping near to us. In that moment, we will in one way fear, but in that same moment, we will feel the victory of Jesus as he lays his hand upon us in grace and mercy. And in that moment, we will sense an assurance, an assurance that dispels all fear and fills up with love. And we'll know that neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor evil, nor death, nor height, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus as he lays his hand of blessing upon us. And that's when we'll be able to go into the midst of this world, despite all of its darkness and all of its brokenness, we'll be able to go into the midst of this world as ambassadors of an unusual beauty. And that's why we need Jesus to advent towards us. And praise the Lord, he has. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.